Okay, on page 37. Bottom of the page, you have the bold font. Words, fire, and columns of smoke. And you see the instruction in Agada is as each of the words is said, a bit of wine is removed from the cup with the finger or by cord. And then on the next page, you have the ten plates. And it says again, as each of the plates mentioned, a bit of wine is removed from the cup. Now, why are we doing that? Hereby lies a very important idea. It pains me to say that it's a liberal idea. As some of you know, the liberals are my uh, intellectual uh, opposite. But here, I think it's a really genuine idea. And I'll give you the background to it. When the sea opened, the sea opened up and the Jews went across and the Egyptians were drowned, um, it says that the angels wanted to sing God's praises and God silenced them. The work of my hands is drowning in the sea and you're saying, praise. That's that wonderful little idea. Look at that. You know, so it cares about the death of the Egyptians. It's also a tragedy. But, we should notice that the Jews who witnessed that incident did say Shira. Not only did they say Shira, but if you look at the text of the Shira, most of it is devoted to celebrating the destruction of the Egyptians. And that Shira is written in our Torah, and we say it every morning when we daven. We're not embarrassed about it. So, <coughs> something has to be done to explain why they couldn't and we did. Now, this removal of wine from the cup indicates that if our freedom had to be purchased at the price of the destruction of the Egyptians, our freedom, is, our, our joy is not full. Our cup is not full. And indeed, that's one of the reasons given for the fact that on the last days of Pesach was every day except for the first day <coughs> you only say half hour not only going to say half hour means leave out half of each of two psalms that's not the issue the issue is that when you say what's called half hour it's only a custom it's not a full fledged law the whole performance is qualitatively reduced Spartan don't say a blessing they recite the half hour without a blessing. We, certain groups of Hasidim, post Hasidim, don't say a blessing. Say half hour. Why not say the whole hour? So that there are three reasons given in the postkin. And one of the reasons is that the seventh day of Pesach is the anniversary of the crossing of the sea, when the Egyptians ran. And therefore we can't say whole hour. And the intermediary day shouldn't be greater than the last day which is itself a full holiday 
and therefore the intermediary days are reduced also and therefore we say whole hollow only on the first day <coughs> so what we have now is three <coughs> different positions we have the Jews at the sea who did not I mean, who did say Shira to express God's praises we have the angels at the sea whom God silenced and we have the Jewish people forever after whose joy is reduced by the fact that their freedom was dependent upon the destruction of the Egyptians I think the simplest uh, explanation here is this there are two points of view there's God's point of view that takes into account all relevant factors and then there is a narrow partisan point of view which says what's in it for us what's good what have we from our point at the sea God says to the angels you have to look at it from my point of view from my point of view the Jews are being slaves are being saved and the Egyptians are being destroyed and they're all my creatures and the fact that some of my creatures have to be destroyed is a tragedy for you to celebrate this as if it were a holy positive event is inappropriate because you have to represent how it looks from my point of view. The Jews at the sea took a partisan point of view. Our oppressors were being destroyed and our salvation was being guaranteed and not only were we saved from them but they who oppressed us and who drowned our male newborns in the river they're getting destroyed from our point of view that's terrific there's no negative aspect to it whatsoever that's why the Jews were standing at the sea but after we received the Torah at Sinai we then were forced to adopt God's point of view he who possesses the Torah is responsible for creation as a whole he no longer can play that partisan role what's in it for me so retroactively, after receiving the Torah Sinai, we too have to register the fact that the Egyptians were lost, and that reduces our joy at the at the event. That's what's going on when you take out the blood of the the wine from the cup. Yeah. What does it mean that the angels wanted to sing praise? I thought they don't have free will. Well, um, in a way, that's right. It means that the way they're programmed, they miss the reality. And by stopping them, God is enforcing a reality on them which is beyond their ability to perceive given their, their limited perception. And the fact that the interaction took place teaches us something. But they're just not said to you. You might not have noticed it. or not known the reason why. In this way, this way it teaches us something. But in general, they don't have free will. Okay, there might be some exceptions, but in general, they don't have free will. Good, on to the next. Now, Rabbi Yossi Agalili said, How does one derive that the Egyptians were struck with ten plagues in Egypt, but fifty plagues in the sea? Now, if you, if you know this, pay attention. When I ask you a question, they answer what you don't know. Concerning the plagues in Egypt, the Torah says, the magician said to Pharaoh, it is the finger of God. And at the sea, the Torah relates, Israel saw the great hands which Hashem laid upon the Egyptians. The people feared Hashem, they believed in Hashem and his servant Moses. How many plagues did we see with the finger? 
Ten. There were ten plagues in Egypt. They conclude that if they were struck with ten plagues in Egypt, where they were struck with a finger, your helpful translator puts in, they must have been made to suffer fifty plagues at the sea, where they were struck with a whole hand. Right? Push it. Right? Five times ten is fifty. Now I tell you, I tell you, that five times ten is fifty is not where this word is coming from. That's not what's motivating this idea. That's not it. I know it says five times ten. I'm telling you, that's not it. That's not what is motivating here. Look again at the text and see if you can figure out what's really motivating it. The five times ten is just window dressing. It's just, you know, a way of putting a number on it. But that's not what's motivating the idea. Yeah. Perhaps the thing of God was, the magician said it, because they wanted to put the God down to diminish his, uh, his power. So perhaps here it seems that his full glory is even is known to everybody. And from the change there after this. Interesting observation. I never thought of it that way. Why did they say finger of God? Why did they make it something as small as a finger? That, that should be investigated. That's a not very nice observation. I never thought of that. Doesn't the Midrash say that there isn't the magician? Because here it says the magician said and then what the Israel saw. I, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I don't know. It could be the Midrash says it. I'm not, uh, I, I'm not really well versed in Midrash. So maybe I, I appreciate the observation. But I want to know, Rabbi Yosef really is making a remark here. He's, he's, he's making a point and proving the point. Where does the proof come from? What is the real point here? The real point is not 5 times 10 is 50. That's not the real point. It's there. It's there, as I say, as a kind of way of putting numbers on it. What's the real point? It's come greater. Where in the Most words? Very. Where in the words? We're talking about Rabbi Yosef Lili's words here. Okay. I have to give these guys a chance. You know so much. You know, I, 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 these guys have to, have to struggle and, and come through on their own. Um, what is in this paragraph about the experience at the sea that drives the real point? Not much left. And we were there to see it. They saw the great hand of God. People feared Hashem and believed in Hashem. They feared Hashem and they believed in Him and in Moses' servant. That's not written about what happened in Egypt. If at the sea it tells us that they feared Hashem and believed in Him, and it doesn't tell us that in Egypt, then something at the sea must have been spectacularly more effective than what happened in Egypt. Because look at the reaction. That's what's driving him. What's driving him is that the effect on the people was qualitatively greater at the sea. Okay, now, you want to put a number on the difference. So that's a finger, and this is a hand, but that's one, and this is five times as much. If that's ten, that's fifty. That's not the essential word here. The essential word here is and over here you have this belief in God and in Moses the servant you don't have anything like that in Egypt and that being the case they, uh, yeah that that could just mean that the quality of miracles were, were greater but what does that have to make it that the quantity greater you know I don't know if the quantity here is that serious you know I, I don't know if you can I don't know if anybody has a list of the 50 you know 50 different things you know speckled 
uh, uh, locusts and striped locusts and <laughs> it's just a number. I don't. I, it could be the, the numbers referring to Kabbalistic ideas. I don't think you should be taking that ser- seriously, you know, not on a literal level, right? because that's not what's driving it. It's not finger versus hand. It's here they believed they, they had awe and fear of God, and they believed that something spectacular happened here. Now you're looking for a way to describe it. Finger and hand is a way to describe it, but that's not the issue here. The issue is not finger and hand. Rabbi Lezer says, now watch this, how does one derive that every plague that the Holy One blessed be inflicted upon the Egypt, in the Egypt was equal to, that's not quite the Hebrew, better, was for, was made of four, was for, we're going to make every plague into four. How are we going to do that? Four is written. Now watch. He sent upon them his fierce anger. Now your friendly translator puts in a colon. Sent upon his fierce anger, colon, wrath, fury, trouble, and a band of emissaries of evil. Gosh, that's four. I have four fingers sticking up. There must be four. Uh-huh. Therefore conclude that in Egypt they were struck by 40 plagues, each one was four, to see by 200. Right? Now, next paragraph. The Kiva said, I was going to derive that each plague that the Holy Ghost the inflicted by the Jews in Egypt was equal to five plagues. Oh, not four, five. For it is written, He sent upon them his fierce anger, wrath, fury, trouble, and a bed of emissaries of evil. Gosh, that's the same verse we had on the previous page. It's the same verse. But your translator didn't punctuate it the same way. What did he do this time? Instead of a colon, he put in a comma. Why? Because this time we're going to count his fear, his anger, as one of them. Last time his fierce anger was taken as introduction. It was the next four. Only four. This time we're counting his fierce anger as one becomes five. But this is really a Kiva. He's I'm sorry, Lazar and Kiva. He's in the same verse. The same verse. One is counting four and one is counting five. What's going on? What's going on? Is this now a machlekes? Is this an opinion? How to read the verse? How much you should count? Should you count the first one? Should you count the first one? So one of the commentators says here, the disagreement is which divine name is most responsible, most directly active in the place. Is it the name Elohim, Aleph, Lamed, Hey, Good, Zem, which has five letters? Or is it the name Yutsevavke, which has four letters? And that's the real disagreement. Rabbi Lezer is saying it's the four letter name, and the Kiva is saying it's the five letter name. Now, Rabbi Lezer doesn't count the introductory phrase because he wants four, because he wants the four letter name. And the Kiva counts five because he wants the name Elohim. That's just really driving it. Otherwise, very difficult to explain. What, what, they're, they're citing the same verse. They're counting it differently. What could motivate them to count it differently? There's something much deeper than just counting the phrases in the verse. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. Rachamim or did. So either either it was primarily judgment against the Egyptians or primarily mercy for us. Which was what was driving it? All right. Now comes a really difficult one. Had he brought us out of Egypt, but not executed judgments against the Egyptians, would have sufficed. 
Hey, judges against them, but not upon their gods. Judgment of their gods, not slaying their firstborn. Slaying their firstborn, not giving his wealth. Giving the wealth, not split the sea. Not split the sea. Gosh, I wonder what would have happened. <laughs> not split the sea. Hey, split the sea, but not let us through dry land. Flesh on dry land, but not drowned our oppressors. So what? They would have gone through the dry land also and chased us on the other side. Drowned our oppressors, but not provided on heat in the desert. Not provided on heat in the desert. Did he ever just start to death in the desert? Provide our needs, not fed with manna. Fed with manna, but not giving us the Sabbath. Not giving us the Sabbath. If we never had the Sabbath, then it would have been enough. Uh, giving us the Sabbath, not brought us to Mount Sinai. Brought us to Mount Sinai, but not giving us the Torah. What's this? You know, kind of tourist package. <laughs> Here's Sinai, now off to the Red Sea. What do you mean? It brought us to Sinai and not giving us the Torah? That would have been enough. What are we talking about here? So I know two shots. One shot is that it would have been enough to require us to praise him and to celebrate what he did. Each one of these events alone would have been enough to require us to celebrate and to give thanks. Not that we would have been satisfied, but it would have been enough for that. Another shot over here is that every one of these events took place through miracles. And what we're saying here is, of course, we have to have the Sabbath, and we have to have the Torah, and we have to be provided for in the, in the wilderness, and so forth and so on, but it didn't have to happen with miracles. If any one of them had taken place with a miracle, and all the others had taken place in what are seemingly natural ways, that also would have been enough for us. Those two make sense out of it. Without something like that, it's very hard to make sense out of it. You ask other people how they make sense out of it. Yes? Now we repeat it. Yes. Um, Shabbos was announced as the time when the month would not fall. Right? The manna would not fall on, on Shabbos. It was falling for six days, not falling on Shabbos. And double portion falling on Friday for the sake of Shabbos. Now we repeat it. By the way, there are 15 of these. There are 15 of these. And if you go through it, you'll see there are five for destroying the Egyptians and five for benefiting us physically and five for benefiting us spiritually. This means that it was a planned and structured passage. So now we go back through it. Thus, how much more so should we be grateful for all the things? He did all these things for us. And he goes through all 15. He comes to the end, gave us the Torah, brought us to the land of Israel and built us the temple to atone for all our sins. I must tell you, for many years, this really bothered me. Here we are celebrating a great victory. We're celebrating God's love for us and God's care for us and what, how, we, how, we, how He provided for us. Ah, but the end, don't forget that you're a sinner. Don't forget. Who needs that here? What is it doing here? Why must I bring in the fact that we're sinners into this glorious description? It bothered me for years. Until about five years ago, I asked my Rebbe about it, and he gave me an answer. And it took me two years to, to appreciate the answer. Now, now that I appreciate it, I'll tell it to you, it'll probably be simple to understand, but it went against my, my, my mental set to the extent. It took me a long time to appreciate it. Look at what God did. 
brought us out of Egypt, executed judgment against the Egyptians, against their gods, who the firstborn gave us their wealth, split the sea, lands for dry lands, drowned our oppressors, provided our needs in the desert forty years, fed us the manna, gave us the Sabbath, brought us before Mount Sinai, gave us the Torah, brought us the land of Israel. Let's say after all that we fail. Let's say after all that we fail. Wouldn't God be within his rights to say, look what I invested. Look what I did. And now you fail me? Now you fail me? So what is, how does it end? And God says, I built you the temple to atone for your sins. No, I put in a safeguard that even if you fail me, I want to be able to cleanse you and I want to rehabilitate you so you'll be okay. This is another expression of God's love for us and His care for us. Not only did He do all of these things, but if we fail Him after all of them, all He wants is that we should be able to, to, to cleanse ourselves and atone and, and recoup the position that we were in. It's, it is spectacularly consistent with the love and the care and the concern that is expressed all the way up to that point. It's just required for me a flipping perspective to see that. You with me? Okay. And when Gamliel used to say, whoever has not explained the following three things on Pesach has not fulfilled his duty. Namely, Pesach, Paschal, Paschal offering, Matzah, unleavened bread, and more of their but it's never ex- it's not explained these things. And therefore, we are now going to spend three paragraphs explaining them. He's not fulfilled his duty. Why not? Let's see. What are my duties on the night of Pesach? There are three, I'm sorry, there are four biblical commandments that apply on the night of Pesach. One is to eat masa. One is to eat more. One is to eat the Paschal sacrifice, and the fourth is to tell the story of the Exodus from Egypt. Why can't I do it like this? I tell the story. That takes three hours. Whew! Three hours! I'm hungry! And now it's time for supper. And I eat matzah, and I eat more, and I eat the Paschal sacrifice. Didn't I do all four mitzvahs? Why does Megamaliel say that I haven't fulfilled my obligation if I haven't explained the symbolism of those three items. Indeed, which obligation haven't I fulfilled? Now, here the commentators are split, and it won't matter for the point that I want to make. Some commentators say you haven't fulfilled the mitzvah of telling the story. Telling the story requires um, giving the background to the mitzvahs of Achila, to the commandments of eating that you're going to carry out. And the others say that the commandments of eating have to be done with understanding of what they mean, not enough to do them just physically. Now, I should tell you, when he says you've not fulfilled your duty, what he means is you haven't fulfilled it perfectly. You have, in fact, done the mitzvah. A person who doesn't recite these three paragraphs and is, and is ignorant of the symbolism of the Matzah and Pesach, uh, has fulfilled the mitzvah, just has fulfilled it in the best way. Now, let me add another item here. I'm not going to be with you, so I can't. I can't do this in, in order. Um, you know, we say halal as part of the Haggadah. Yeah, but it's split. The first two paragraphs of halal are said before the meal, 
And the rest of the halal said after him. Halal does not tolerate interruption. Even Svardim, who, as I told you, on occasion, recite halal without a blessing, Christ says you shouldn't interrupt anyway. It's not a question of, of not interrupting because of blessing at the beginning, blessing at the end. You shouldn't interrupt the continuity of the blessing. You shouldn't interrupt recital of halal. Now, I'll just teach you a piece of logic. You shouldn't interrupt the recital of halal. And here, you have the beginning of halal before the meal, and the rest of halal after the meal. Here, there are two ways to go. You could say, either what? That tonight, huh, say again? Good for you. You could say, either tonight is different, and for some reason tonight we do tolerate interruption, or you could say that the meal is not an interruption. That's a more daring thing to say, but you could say that also. This is a quote of Chaim Brisky, in emphasize an analysis like that. When you have what looks like a counterexample to a rule, either the rule has been misconstrued or the counterexample isn't the counterexample. One of them has to be rethought. And often, rethinking the counterexample is, is more challenging. Right? Now, um, we said, um, reiterating it now, we said that what the performance, when you read the Haggadah, is to relive the experience of going out from Egypt. It's not like saying Shema in Shul, when you mention it in order to remember it, you did that in Shul already. It takes about 10 seconds to say that verse. You're spending hours here. You do it right up all night. It's not recital. We said, I've quoted a bullet to you, that one says, call a the Sabbath, the more you say, the better it is. Speech is an expression of your identity. It's not a question of conveying, conveying information. It's a question of experience. Now, you're reliving the event. Why are we supposed to eat matzah mora and a paschal sacrifice? Because they ate matzah mora and a paschal sacrifice. We're doing what they did. Well, for them, it wasn't blank eating. It wasn't just, you know, time to have some food, so let's eat this. Those foods were very meaningful to them. For us to do what they did means that we have to experience it the way they experienced it. If we don't know what the symbolism is, then we don't get it. We're not getting it. So, um, Rabbi Gabriel is saying here, you haven't fulfilled your obligations the way it should be fulfilled unless you know what the symbolism is and you eat it with that symbolism in mind. Then it becomes the experience. You with me? Okay. Now let's see. Pesach. The Pesach that our ancestors ate in Egypt when the temple was standing. For what purpose? Why was it being done? Because, now I told you, your translator says passed over, I told you, jumped on. The houses of Jewish people, of our ancestors in Egypt. As it says, you shall declare that it's not, you shall say, and it is a fastful sacrifice to Hashem who Pasach on the houses of the Jewish people in Egypt when he struck plagued the Egypt and our houses he saved and the people 
start and prostrate himself. Okay. Um, let me raise a question for you, then we'll bring it on, and then I'll, I'll summarize some of the ideas here. It, we just read Pesach. Next is coming Matzah, next is coming Mora. Does he bother you about the order? Matzah should be first. Matzah should be first, maybe. Well, what time? It's more random. Maybe more should be first. Why? Because more is the bitter as a flavor, right? If you talk about if you talk about in order of, of historically, it's it's out of historical order. I he says doesn't mean Gamliel said it. Let Rabbi Gamliel say it. Say it another way. So the answer is because that's the way it says in the verses. In the verses of the Torah, it's Pesach Matzah Okay. So then, what should you say? Why is it that way in the verses? Don't you know? Don't roll over and play dead. Ask the question all the way to the top. Right? There's an amazing precedence. There's an amazing precedence. Um, it's together with a lot, a lot, a lot of material. It's a large picture. I'll just, I'll just mention the. Let's read to the paragraphs and I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll, I'll put it in. Matzah. We saw this. I'm reminding you, as you know. Why do we eat this unleavened bread? Because the dough of our fathers did not have time to become leavened before the King of Kings, the Holy One, blessed as He revealed Himself to them and redeemed them. It didn't have time to become leavened. The dough of our ancestors didn't have time to become leavened. What's the picture here? They were like rushing out, but they had the new ones prepared. Like they know they were going tomorrow. Didn't they have time to cook beforehand? Okay, so <coughs> let's follow up what you're saying. Somehow they must have run out of time, sort of unexpectedly, right? And what were they planning? They were planning to just kind of just go out in the middle of the day, and everyone would see them. So what were they planning to do with the dough? To get the plan and eat it. It didn't have time to become leaven. It didn't have time to become leaven. What were they planning to do? To leaven it. They were planning to leaven it, right? This just didn't have time. What, what's the picture here? What, what, what exactly are we talking about here? We're talking about the first night of Pesach. Right? I don't think you can go to Angel's Bakery and buy a on the first night of Pesach. Well, see, now watch the verse that says it explicitly. As it is written, they baked the dough which they brought out of Egypt into unleavened bread for it had not fermented because they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay. That's why it didn't ferment. You know why it didn't ferment? Because they were driven out and could not delay. They couldn't delay. Meaning, if they had been able to, then they would have. They just couldn't. Because they were driven out. Nor had they prevented... Yeah, the Egyptians drove them out. Forced them out. Pushed them out. No, it says that he, that Pharaoh and the came at night and said, "You got to get out of here, otherwise we're all dead now." Pharaoh sent them out. Nor did they prepare any provisions for the way. Right. So I'll tell you what the Ran says. The Ran in Pesachim. We have a funny picture of how Pesach works. Uh, see, a funny picture. We have a picture according to our practice. But in Egypt it wasn't that way. And the Mishnah in Sophia actually explicitly says what differences are there between 
our Pesach and the Pesach of Mitzrayim and it lists a number of them one of them is that the prohibition against eating chametz in Egypt was only 24 hours not 7 days like it is today it's only 24 hours that's what it says in the Mishnah the Ran and others, some others say that's the prohibition against eating it there was no prohibition against possessing it this prohibition against eating so here was the Jewish thought ok tonight we're having to say of course we're eating matzah the Torah told us to eat matzah and the Torah told us don't eat chametz correct till tomorrow evening ok what are we going to eat tomorrow evening well we're going to be on the road you know we're going to be trekking through the wilderness let's make something to take along let's make some bread we'll wrap it in saran wrap you know <laughs> And we'll take it along in plastic bags and tomorrow night we'll eat it. That was perfectly permissible for them to do. That was their plan. <coughs> but they didn't get a chance to do it because the Egyptians pushed them out fast. Faster than they anticipated. And therefore, they had to take along the dough. Now, according to their experience, and so it is brought down Malafa, as long as the dough is being worked, as long as it's being moved, as long as it's being used, it doesn't ferment. And they were traveling. They had it over their shoulders and they were walking with it. So it didn't ferment. And then when they got to the end of the day's trek, they were hungry. They didn't then wait for it to become covet. They didn't run away. Even though they didn't have to. God engineered that the first bread that they ate when they left was also mine. This is a very profound. People go to the Haggadah every year and they don't even notice this. This matzah that it says we're going to eat at the Seder is not because of the matzah that they ate at the Seder. It's amazing. They ate matzah at their Seder. We're eating matzah at Seder. Shouldn't it be repeated the same thing? Yeah, it should be, but it isn't. Mekhanah says it isn't. No, it's the matzah they ate 24 hours later. We're eating our matzah at the Seder because of what they ate 24 hours later. And what was forced on them as matzah through divine providence, not because of any laws or anything that they had to do, was forced on them by divine providence. We have to see our matzah at the Seder as an expression of the matzah that they ate when they left. That's the bread of freedom. When they sat down to eat their matzah at the Seder, the firstborn Egyptians hadn't died yet. The Egyptians had not yet announced that they were letting them go. The power wasn't broken yet. Okay, they believed in God and they trusted Him and they, and they understood that it was going to happen but it hadn't happened yet. God arranged that for them 24 hours later they had an extension of the Seder. The Matzah Seder lasted 24 hours. 26 hours. So it included the following night. Our matzah is freedom matzah. Our matzah is freedom matzah. Oh, our matzah is freedom matzah? Gosh, I remember when we started this series, I remember reading something else. Anybody else remember what we read then? 
all Achma Anya says way back on uh, page uh, 25. This is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. <coughs> yeah, that's the one that they ate in Egypt. No. You said that the bread that they ate when they were in Egypt, the Seder, was they still weren't free. So now, uh, when we start mocking, we say this is the bread of affliction. We point to the matzah on the plate, right? This is the bread of affliction. Now, when Megamah says, you know why we're eating this matzah? Because it's the bread of freedom. But you see, you have gone through the experience of the exodus. You've relived it. You're reliving it. You're in the process of reliving it. And that means that the matzah is double. The matzah is the bread that ate because of the affliction and it is the bread of freedom. The matzah bridges the gap between affliction and freedom. Now listen. There are three biblical commandments of eating on the night of Pesach. The Paschal Sacrifice, the Matzah, and the Morah. We don't have the Paschal Sacrifice. We also don't have the Morah. The Morah today is only rabbinic. The Paschal Sacrifice commemorates the freedom. The Morah commemorates the affliction. We don't have either of them. But it's okay because we have the Matzah which commemorates both. So we still have the ability to symbolize both. And that's why Chazal say, Lachem Oni, Lachem Oni, beloved Zvarim Harpe. This is the bread over which many things are said. Because it embodies both halves of the transition. And therefore it's relevant to both. That's another example of the idea of reliving and how the symbolism works. Yeah. One question on the matzah matzah. The first night before the before the tenth matzah, they, you said they ate matzah, but right. there was no there was no actual rule that they cannot eat eleven. Uh, I said they can't eat it. They cannot eat it. They can they can possess it. They can't eat it. So what did they the first the first night they ate eleven bread? The first night they ate matzah. The Torah says explicitly. I'm telling you what to do here in Egypt. Eat a Paschal sacrifice with matzah and water. So you see, that first Seder continued for the next 25 hours. I, I didn't, I said the Seder of the matzah. In other words, the no, fact the matzah, that you yeah. ate matzah went for 25 hours. And the next night, yeah. they also ate matzah. Even though they had left Egypt already. And they weren't commanded to. But they did that accidentally. That uh, happened accidentally. Well, because of divine providence. I wouldn't call it accidents, but okay. divine, divine providence, providence engineered that they should, they should do that. But the first but the first one they were still in Egypt and they were eating the matzah and God had told them before you have to make unleavened bread unleavened bread matzah yeah that's right see, that was an accident that was a command that, uh, that was an yeah thing. but that's the positive command to make yeah. doesn't mean you can't make also chalas right yeah. so you can make both okay now you have the more why do we eat this bitter herb because the Egyptians embittered the lives of our thousands even it says they embittered their lives of hard labor border bricks all my labor in the field, whatever service of agents for one Okay. Now, I'll just tell you some of this pre-tatic. The Mishnah that I quoted before in, in Sochim says like this. What difference is there between the Pesach in Egypt and our Pesach? It gives a list of differences. One of them is that the Paschal sacrifice 
in Egypt was eaten for one night and the Paschal sacrifice in our times is eaten for seven days. That's what the Mishnah says. The Gemara says, What? <laughs> you don't eat the Paschal sacrifice for seven days? Impossible! Ridiculous! <laughs> eat it on the night, that's it. Oh, says the Gemara. It means it's prohibition of Chametz. It's prohibition of Chametz last seven days. That's what it means. Oh. Well, okay. So in, the, in, in Egypt, the prohibition of Chametz, as I told you, was one night. One day, sorry, one, 24 hours. Our prohibition of Chametz is, is seven days. Correct? Correct? The law is right. But now, if you're telling me about the prohibition of Chametz, why are you hanging it on the Paschal sacrifice? And why are you making it a... Why do you say it in such a, a, a dramatically misleading way that you eat the Paschal sacrifice for seven days? Well, what you mean is you can't eat Chametz for seven days. There's a, 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 a crucial difference between what does it mean on the one hand and why did it use those words to mean that on the other hand. Sometimes you're faced with a difficult text and you're forced to say this is what it means. And you may have a proof that that's what it means. But after you get finished proving what it means it's always appropriate to ask okay, that's what it means but why would these use words used to mean that especially if it's hard to figure out what it means and you could have used simpler words it's important to explain why those used words were used to mean that okay says the Prisadic the Pesach the Korban Pesach the Pesach sacrifice represents God's activity the Matzah and the Mora represent our activity we endured the affliction and it was our challenge to endure it well to endure it faithfully some succeeded more some succeeded less Matzah is our responsibility to destroy the Chomets the Chomets inside ourselves the Yetzirah the Yetzirah as I have said to some of you in the past Chomets represents the false reality of nature Matzah requires us to see through that and not take nature seriously. Says the Prisadic, based on other older sources, <coughs> one key message of Pesach, which I have told you also this year several times, is that God initiated the process and all we did was to respond. We didn't deserve it, we didn't earn it, we didn't uh, make it we only respond. Our ability to eat matzah and mora comes from the fact that God saved us with the death of the firstborn and protected us from the plague. That's what the mission is hinting at. This is only a hint. That's what the mission is hinting at when it says the <coughs> paschal sacrifice is eaten for seven days in our times. And it says, oh, I meant, it meant the prohibition against, against comments. Because our ability to live up to the prohibition against comments and to realize its challenge is only because God initiated. He initiated. That's the reason for the, for the order. 
which are found in the Torah and in Agra. Why is Matzah Um Here I think that the cash the, the is not a kasha because uh, in, in chronology they would be simultaneous. Matzah and are both a result of the Ephushim. We spoke about matzah, you know, you can do matzah in two minutes. That's why it's very convenient for a slave who hasn't got free time to, to do that. Okay. Now, this last paragraph on 45, we spoke about it. I'll just remind you what it says. Now, and add one thing to the Mara, and you can do that. In every generation, it is one's duty to regard himself as though he personally gone out of Egypt. As it is written, You shall tell your son of that day. It's because of this that Hashem did for me when I went out of Egypt. And if he didn't get the point, it repeats it. It was not only our fathers who the Holy One redeemed from slavery, we too were redeemed with them. So certainly not the nation. It's our fathers and us with them. As is written, he brought us out from there and might take us to the land which he had promised our fathers. This is my round. Um... The, the two statements differ. One is an, is, is an expression of the individual. He took me out. The second one is an expression of the individual as part of the group. Us together with our fathers. And that means that one should experience the whole meaning double. What does it mean for me? And what does it mean for me as part of us? And now, the next paragraph starts with therefore. Therefore, it is our duty to thank, praise, to pay tribute, glorify, etc., etc., because we went through it also. Our obligation to praise God, which includes Shira, is because we experienced it. We, now, in 2006, are experiencing it. We're not just reciting history. Not just reciting history. The big difference between the recital of Hallow and the night of Pesach and the recital of Hallow at other times. The recital of Hallow at other times is commemorating a historical event which has consequences for us. The recital of Hallow at the, in the Haggadah is itself a performance of Shir. Performance of, of doing again what they did because of what we ourselves have experienced. Someone I say that's why there's no blessing for it. Okay.